invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 2, excuse me, Romans, well, it's the end of chapter 1, right by chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, we're going to uh, wrap up chapter 1 this morning. And um, we're, we're still in the uh, Paul's treatment of the doctrine of sin, and uh, we'll be here for a little while. And you might be uh, wondering, uh, why do we have to spend so much time talking about something so unpleasant? And, and the answer, of course, is that um, you only see the beauty of the gospel as we see the truth of our need for it. Um, the blacker the night, the more beautiful the stars, and that's exactly what Paul is after, as he wants us to see the gospel as the power of God unto salvation, uh, the salvation of sinners, sinners who have uh, truly transgressed um, a holy God and are guilty before him and sentenced under the sentence of death. And so let's give our attention Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to... Uh, Pick it up, verse 20. Well, let's just start at 18. Let's just take it as a section, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is, forever, is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done." They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we'll be looking at verses 28 through the end of the chapter in the message this morning. Let's just ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we are sinners, each and every one of us, and left to ourselves, Lord, we would continually exchange the truth of God for a lie, and, and uh, Lord... Our lives would be defined by all the sins that we see here. It is grace alone that gives us the ability uh, to stand and to be transformed. And Lord, I pray that you would do that transforming work this morning again by your Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear what is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the questions that bewilders mankind uh, 
today and I think throughout the ages is why do people do senseless, wicked things? Uh, we see more and more of that, of course. We, um, why, why do people arm themselves and go on college campuses or in, in um, elementary schools and start shooting and murdering innocent people? On the more, um, not as maybe severe, but, but equally senseless and confounding, why do rich people steal? I was reading an article this week um, that points out that rich people shoplift more than poor people. There's a study, 2008, in the American Journal of Psychology showed that wealthy people were 30% more likely to steal from any store than those who made $20,000. One um, 59-year-old man, 2019, was arrested for shoplifting from his local Kmart, stole $200 worth of household goods. Uh, A few days prior, he had uh, purchased an $8 million private island in the Florida Keys. Uh, there's a man who makes a study of these things. His name is John C. Brady, a criminologist and retail, retail store detective, uh, has spent his career tracking this phenomenon. He was, says one former patient who lived in a $10 million man- dollar mansion in the hills of Silicon Valley was arrested for stealing a tube of toothpaste at 4 a.m. from her local supermarket. Now, why in the world would a multimillionaire steal a tube of toothpaste? It doesn't make any sense. But who among us haven't been as confounded when we look at our own lives and we see things that are equally sinful and stupid and senseless? Do you understand why you do the things that you do? The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? I can't. Every one of us have done wicked things that confound us. We, we just ask ourselves, what in the world were we thinking? Why do we do things that we know are wrong? Why do we do things that we know offend God? Why do we do things that we know will, will wound uh, those that we love? What's wrong with us? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What's wrong with me? Well, that's a very good question to ask. Because something is wrong with us. Something is wrong with you. And it's important that we focus on it because we live in a culture that is um, increasingly not asking the question. Uh, If you ask the world today, what's wrong with me? Uh, The world will say, well, there's nothing at all wrong with you. Right? We are all beautiful and special people with endless potential just as we are. We just need to, you know, follow our dreams. There's nothing wrong with us. And if there is something wrong with us, it's certainly not our fault. It's the fault of our repressive culture or the fault of our oppressed past or the, the fault of a mental disease. Maybe we just don't love ourselves enough, but, but that would be the most uh, guilt or, uh, that we could say about you know, anything wrong with, with us. We're just not, we're not kind enough to ourselves. We're, we're not gracious and generous enough. We don't believe in ourselves sufficiently. Well, it's, it's critical that we understand this because, as we've said in the past, uh, if we falsely diagnose what's wrong with us, that's going to lead to a false prescription and no cure. There will be no fix, no change, no hope. Paul is writing these things uh, here in Romans chapter 1 because he's eager to see sinners cured by the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And he knows that the only way that the gospel will seem precious to sinners or even make sense to sinners is if they understand the truth of their need of it. And that is the truth about our sin. And so Paul begins this section in verse 18 explaining to us that the world lives under the sentence of God's condemnation. I mean, God is angry with with sin. And, and we need to know that so that we can rightly perceive God's wonderful answer, what God has done in Jesus Christ. Um, God, uh, Paul has shown us that the underlying root of sin is idolatry, and, and God in, in justice and in, in, a, in a holy response, then he, he gives people over to their sin. If, they, if they're insisting on it, then God gives them over. In verse 24, it was to sexual impurity. Verse 26, homosexuality. And verse 28 in our text, a debased mind. Because they refuse to do what is right, the Bible says that people are given up to do what ought not to be done. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to look at the root of sin and the fruit of sin and the guilt of sin. The root and the fruit and the guilt. They did not see fit to acknowledge God as God. And so to acknowledge God is just... It's to respond to him with worship, to respond to him with thanksgiving, right? People did not give thanks to him, to, to, to thank him, uh, to respond to him uh, with, with joyful obedience. There's, that is what ought to happen just given the nature of God. That, that is not something that we have to, should, should need to make a case for. You shouldn't need to argue someone into that. God being God, that should be the natural necessary, good, proper response to acknowledge Him, worship Him, thankfully obey Him. The great evil of mankind is that we did not see fit to do that. Didn't see fit to pay attention to the one who created us and holds our life in His hands. We decided to ignore the one who numbered all of our days before one of them came to be. We decided to reject Him despise the living God whom we will face on the day of judgment. We decided to count the eternal God as unworthy of our attention, undeserving of our worship, unfit for our obedience, and so we worship dung beetles and our genitals instead. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. That's what man has done, that's what people continue to do, and God in His holy just wrath responds. He doesn't just lay back, sit back, and just sort of passively watch. God engages with human sin. And God engages with human sin by giving men and women over to a debased mind. The word debased means literally inauthentic. It means a, it's a mind that has betrayed its purpose, a mind that's gone off the track. You see, the mind was created to perceive the reality of God, to understand the significance and majesty of God, and then to correctly value the glory of God as God. But when men use their mind to reject all of that, then God gives them over to a mind that doesn't work right. The NIV says it's a depraved mind. Doug Moo says it's, this is a worthless mind. It's a mind that's broken. It can't grasp the truth of God any longer. 
Doug Moose says, people who have turned from God are fundamentally unable to think and decide correctly about God and His will. This tragic incapacity is the explanation for the failure of people to comprehend, let alone practice, biblical ethical principles. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and, and it's just clear that, that nothing you were saying about the truth of God or of living for the glory of God, it, none of it made any sense. It's like you were speaking a different language. There's a chilling commentary in the Gospel of John where Jesus says to the Pharisees this, John 8 verse 43. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. That's, a, that's a, an amazing statement. Why don't they understand Jesus? Why don't they believe Jesus? And the answer is because he's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. But they're broken debased mind can't handle the truth rejects the truth outright their mind has a filter that just receives lies untruth paul says in 1 corinthians 2:14 the natural man does not accept the things of god why they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them you see, this, the sobering truth of these verses is that God judicially responds to man's refusal to acknowledge his glory by removing man's ability to see the glory. And that truth is found throughout Scripture. For instance, again, in John chapter 12. Uh, at the end of John chapter 12, John is concluding his record of Jesus' public ministry. Everything in the rest of the book will be with Jesus and his disciples. But this is the end of John's account of Jesus' public ministry. And there in the end of uh, John chapter 12, John is giving a commentary as to why it is that so few of the Jewish people actually believed in Jesus. Why, is, why are there so few? And John says this, John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That's really sobering. People naively think that they are just free, autonomous beings living their life on their terms as they choose. They're just doing them, doing their thing. But that is not the truth. It's not what's happening. Sinners are not simply choosing their sin as free, autonomous agents. They are choosing their sin as the direct result of God's judgment on them. They do not see the glory of God and, and, they, and they reject the truth about God because they've been given over to a broken mind. It's a devastating thing. But this is what the Bible teaches. This is the plight of all mankind by nature. 
So you think about Pharaoh, right? He hardens his heart against God and is irrevocably driven to his soul-destroying sin because God says, okay, and God hardens his heart. And Pharaoh can't see. Although the signs are right in front of him, he simply cannot see. This God must not be messed with. This God must be worshipped. He can't see it. And in the same way, we live in a world full of people who just can't see. That's one reason why we should not be frustrated or angry with people in their unbelief. When they, when they just stubbornly refuse to accept it, refuse to hear it, um, don't, don't get angry with that. They can't see. Their mind, there's something that, that, that God has happened to them because of sin, because of God's response to sin, and they can't see it. That's why Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He doesn't yell at them. There should be a grief. However, that's not the end of the story, of course. We'll get to that in a moment. Paul, uh, there's, there's hope for people who can't see, right? I once was blind, but now I see. But Paul wants us to realize that, that so people can't see the truth about God, and so they're given a debased mind, and out of that debased mind, that broken mind, comes all the, the vice and vileness of this world. So in, we have the fruit of sin, verses 29 through 31. Paul names 21 sins in this list. Doesn't seem to be any real structure to it. Um, it's, it's meant to showcase the plethora of human evil that comes from our rejection of God. The first sentence is a summary statement. They were filled with every kind of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and then that's followed by a litany of iniquity. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Yes, boys and girls, God does not, uh, God hates disobedience to parents. Right? And uh, for all, right, these, this, these lists, there's things in this list for all of us, obviously. But people are foolish and faithless and heartless and ruthless by nature. Now, again, uh, someone might protest and say, well, everyone's not like that. Well, that's true. There are unbelievers who live noble, decent lives. Paul wouldn't disagree with that. He's not trying to, to say that every person is as bad as they could possibly be. The point is that this is what the depraved mind produces. How do we know that people's minds are broken, that there's, there's something not clicking when it comes to moral truth and the reality of God? How do you know it's broken? Well, just watch how they live and how they treat people. You see... When God removes his restraining hand in judgment, these are the inevitable results. How do you know that something's wrong with our culture? Well, just look around and you, you, you see senseless, ruthless, faithless things happening all the time. And, and in Christians, you see, we, we should know why this is happening. When, when the vertical relationship gets broken, the horizontal relationships are going to be devastated. This is a litany of, of hurt and violence against fellow image bearers. Murder and strife, deceit and maliciousness. Do you know what malicious means? What that word malice means? Malice is a desire to hurt. 
It is a hunger to harm. There's something in, in us that wants to make you feel pain. That's awful. And the Bible says people are full of this. They're full of it. This list oozes malice, gossips and slanders and haters of God, inventors of evil. It reads like a description of demons. And, and, and Paul's not, he's not, this isn't hyperbole. This is a description of humanity, and it's a description that is a necessary correction to the common human attempt to make our sin less, less awful, right? It's common for people to describe their sins as a mistake or a poor choice, which is a, it's a very nice euphemism, right? I, I stole from my employer, and I slept with my best friend's uh, husband, uh, just made some really poor choices. Well, yeah, they are poor choices. But they're much more than that. They're wicked choices that incur actual guilt, real guilt. John Murray says this, sin is a positive something. It's not simply the absence of something. It is a moral evil and recognized as something that ought not to be done. It's a violation of the category of ought Far too frequently, he says, we fail to entertain the gravity of this fact. It is a violation of the category of ought. God has created his world, and, and God being God, well, he deserves worship, and his creatures ought to give that worship to him, and they ought not to treat his creation and fellow image bearers uh, the way that they do. And so sin is a positive something, an objective reality. And the aggressive nature of, of man's rebellion against God is revealed not just in the fact that people do wicked things, but they applaud wicked things. They encourage people. They give approval to those who practice it. And Paul, and Paul writes this saying, even though people, they know, they know that those who practice such things deserve to die. It's why they tend to do it in the dark or they do it in secret. They're trying to get away with it because they know it's wrong. But they not only commit the sin, but then they applaud others and encourage them to do the same. That's the, the, just the diabolical nature of evil. You see it immediately in the Garden of Eden. So Eve reaches out and she eats of the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat. And what's the very next thing she, that she does? She recruits Adam. She invites him. Why would she do that? Why wouldn't she say, honey, I've just done the most awful, dreadful thing. Stay away. Don't come here. But that's not what she does. She invites him to eat. You see, that's the twisted nature of sin itself. It, it, sinners love to recruit. We like to normalize what ought not to be done. You look at our culture today. Why is there such an incredible pressure to normalize the sins that we see? To normalize sexual immorality. To normalize broken, devastated homes. So a family doesn't mean anything anymore. And we're, and we're attempting to normalize that. We normalize homosexuality. We normalize abortion. Why do people do that? Because they're living out Romans 1 verse 32. 
That sin, you see, sinners are not just committed to sinning against God, but encouraging others to do the same. And, Paul says, that renders mankind worthy of death. Those who practice such things deserve to die, and that's what we mean by guilt. You see, when the Bible talks about guilt, it's not talking about a feeling. I feel guilty. It's talking about a, a forensic, legal reality, a fact. I am guilty. Guilt is the presence of objective grounds for condemnation. Guilt is the presence of objective grounds for death, the death sentence. If you think on the flip side, what innocence is, when, when Pilate says of Jesus, I find no guilt in this man, what he's saying is I've examined him and there's nothing in his behavior that deserves condemnation. There's nothing there. Innocence is the absence of grounds for condemnation. Guilt is the presence of them. If we are guilty before God, it means that we've done things and said things and thought things and failed to do a thousand more things, all of which deserve the sentence of death. Those who do such things deserve to die. Let that word just settle. Deserve. You see, there's an oughtness there again. When we violate the ought of worship, we receive the ought of condemnation. It's a category of ought. We, we have merited death. We have earned hell. You see, hell is not the unfortunate byproduct of sin, but the just, necessary payment due to guilt. Which is why God says the soul that sins shall surely die. That's not just a, a random arbitrary sentence. That is God simply acknowledging, speaking the truth of what must happen. Richard Sibbs says this, old Puritan, sin and death are a chain and link that none can sever. Who shall separate what God in His justice has put together? If sin go before, death will follow. There is not a more constant order in nature than this in God's appointment. First death, first sin, then death and damnation. An unbreakable link. You see, friends, if, if guilt is an objective reality actually deserving of eternal condemnation, then it is evident we cannot save ourselves because how are we going to remove our guilt? What are you going to do? You can just be a good person? Well, the Bible says, A, no one does good except God, and that your best efforts are going to fall short of the glory of God, and, and, and even if you lived a perfect life for the rest of your life, you, it, it doesn't even begin to atone for all the sins that you've committed up till now. I mean, the fact is that this is a, just a dead end to any attempt, any human attempt to save ourselves. We can't do it. Micah 6.6, 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Would that work? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What if, what if I just slaughter my son, my little baby daughter? 
Would that atone? And of course, the, the, it's a rhetorical question. Of course it won't atone. It's not possible to atone, to remove the objective guilt of what we've said and done. So what will it take, you see, to remove the objective reality of my sin? What will it take? It will take a Savior. It'll take a substitute. It requires that someone who is fit take your guilt and is sacrificed on behalf of your guilt and in that atoning sacrifice remove your guilt. There is no other way. There's no other way. There is nothing else that can save our guilty soul from eternal death. And that is exactly why the gospel is so infinitely precious. Because it is the completely unexpected and undeserved good news of God the Holy Father whom we have sinned against sacrificing His precious only Son precisely to bear our guilt and atone for it and, and, and thus take it away. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, every single one of us have gone astray. We have turned every one, the text says, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. And that is absolutely the only hope for humanity. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the declaration of the gospel. The Son of God came to this earth to bear my sin, to bear my guilt, and to remove my guilt forever. Yes, you see, Christians need to understand this because we struggle with sin and we're not quite sure what to make of it. Yes, the principle of sin remains. The flesh is still there and it's still the flesh and it will always be the flesh until it is dead and so we feel the power of it and we experience the stain of it and the shame of it. But we have to understand that Jesus died the righteous for the unrighteous to remove our guilt and by removing our guilt to break the power of sin. The guilt is gone. Today, it's gone. If you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have called out in His name, confessing your sin and looking to Him, the Bible says today the guilt is removed. You are free from the penalty. You are free from the wrath. You're free from the condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. That's the gospel. How do you get that gift? How do, you, how do you get this for your life? How do you get this and receive this for your guilt? You know, there, there are people in the church who, who've never really come to grips with this. 
They go to church and they hear the truth and they, and they, and they, they believe it in vague terms but have never come to just, just face to face with this fact that I am a sinner and that, that the guilt of my sin is real. And it will remain real and it will remain mine unless I come to Jesus Christ confessing my sin and laying hold of his gift. And how do I do that? And the answer is by faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. I believe it's true. I believe it's all true. I believe, Jesus, you were born of a virgin. I believe you came into this very sin-cursed world that I live in today. And you came to live a perfect, obedient life. And you, being the, the, the precious, beautiful Son of God, offered up that life because you loved me. I believe it. And I believe that the promise is true, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I believe that, Jesus, as you offered your life on that, on that cross, bearing my guilt, you also robed me then in a righteousness I could never earn myself. And I receive it as a free gift. And I accept it to be true. My guilt is gone. If you've never had that conversation with God, it is high time. It's high time. Friends, this is what the gospel is about. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. This is why the gospel is so precious. This, is why we, this isn't just a, a religious uh, tradition we have. This isn't just a, a sort of a, a theological hobby of ours. It's life and death. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never had that conversation with the Lord. And you're hoping that your good intentions and your religious inclinations, that that's going to be somehow enough to atone for your guilt. The Bible wants you to know it couldn't possibly begin to touch it. There is one way, and there is one way only, to the removal of our guilt, to being set free from our bondage to death. And that way is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that way is available to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Let's do it together. Father in heaven, we, we just confess that we, have, we so easily think shallowly and cheaply and superficially about our sin, and we make excuses for it, that this is just the way we are, or it's not that big a deal, everyone does it, and, and we can't help it, and, and you're a forgiving God, and we just fail to grasp the reality of guilt. That every sin we commit in thought and word and deed is deserving of hell. And there are no excuses, no explanations, and there's no escape from the sentence that we deserve except through Jesus Christ. And Father, we confess that so often we fail to love Jesus as we should because we have not come face to face with his love for us. When he gave his life bearing our sin to atone for our guilt and to make us right with God, robed in his righteousness so that we never need to fear death, never need to fear condemnation. We don't need to fear anything at all. Because the Son of God loved us and gave his life for us. And Father, I pray that changes how we treat people. 
that we would repent of our gossip and our slander and our murderous thoughts, our evil intents. That having been made right with, with you, Father, we begin to find the power to be made right with others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do this work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives. For the glory of Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond in song, uh, standing together, and we're going to sing in Christ alone. And then after the benediction, we're going to celebrate the grace of God in song as well. Let's stand together and sing. No guilt in life, no fear in death.
may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.